You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Gators Breakdown, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Joining me tonight on this episode of Gators Breakdown here live on YouTube is co-host Will Miles. You can find him on his site, readingreaction.com, and on Twitter at WillMilesSEC. We were uh, we were joking behind the scenes a bit before we we come on here, and uh, you know we we've had this we had this Q and A episode planned for about a week or so, and then uh, a pretty pretty noteworthy article uh, today comes out from Matt Hayes Saturday down south that uh, definitely definitely caught your attention. Yeah, I mean something happened in in Gator Nation. I can't I can't believe it. And you know, I mean Hayes. I think Hayes said some things in the article that sort of uh, people have suspected. The question is, I think it's pretty clear there's some tension between the the university officials and the administration and Mullen. The question is how how um, how significant is that tension? And then you know he sort of made it sound like 2021 is like a make or break year for Mullen. And I I think that's a really interesting question because I I've sort of gone into 2021 thinking this is a rebuilding year towards 2022. Um, if this is a make or break year, then that sort of changes the calculus and changes whether we're going to see a lot of young guys on the field in 2021, right? So um, I do think that depending upon what the situation is behind the scenes may impact what we see on the field. But, uh, you know, beyond that, we've got transfers to talk about and, <laughs> and then all the questions everybody sent in. Certainly appreciate everybody's participation. So, uh, you know, lots to talk about. And like you always say, man, never a dull moment. Never, never. Uh, of course, I, yeah. I don't think the situation is that dire as far as that article goes. I don't think it's, uh, you know, yeah, and, and you know, yeah, I think he did say it on its surface. Could it be a uh, make or break type of year uh, for for Dan Mullen? And I, I don't see it being being that far. And you look, he said, winning cures all. Winning carries everything else that uh, follows. And the late season fall last year, along with some of the off-season antics, of course. You know, we've we've discussed a little bit of this stuff already, but combine all that stuff and, you know, you kind of see where the admin side of it may be a little frustrated. But if you keep winning, all that stuff gets glossed over. And, and you know, going back to Dan Mullen being a head coach at Mississippi State and when he was hired here at Florida, you know, I think when he was hired – when we were discussing what's he going to be at Florida, we put a, a ceiling and a floor and look, the, the floor for Dan Mullen 
it's I mean it, it's pretty good. Uh, you know, we we don't. I, I think there's still some question where the ceiling is, ceiling is uh, with him, and, and we question that because of recruiting. And you know, 2020 was supposed to be the year, and it didn't really live up to the expectation in a lot of people's eyes. But you look at the floor and the type of coach we think Dan Mullen is he's probably going to win enough to where you know, there's not too big of a question, especially uh, a lot, as a lot of the fan base likes to remind us when you compare it to Will Muschamp, when you compare it to Jim McElwain and what Dan Mullen has been able to bring to the table, he's winning enough to even, you know, to, to silence that, 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 that criticism, I guess. Um, it, it had to be a couple more years of being on the floor before I think you even attempt to move on for Dan Mullen for purely football reasons. Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of the point of of Hayes' article, right? Is yeah. that is that the reason to move on has nothing to do with football, other than maybe recruiting. It has to do with the administration not appreciating having their job being made more difficult by some of the things that Mullen has done. And I know, you know, it's funny. There's there's really kind of a divide when you look at the people who at least have reached out to me, specifically either through the website or on Twitter or on Facebook. Actually, there's a Twitter Facebook divide as well. There are a lot of people who found the Darth Mullen stuff after after Halloween sort of inciting the 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 brawl there, or at least participating in the brawl, and certainly not uh, not helping subjugate it. There, there's a divide. There, pe- there's some people who loved it, right? They love the passion. They think it's hilarious that he came dressed up in his Halloween costume. Um, you know, they think it's good that he doesn't take himself too seriously, at least in that particular aspect. Um, and, and so the fan base is divided. Same thing with the pack the swamp comments after Texas A and M. You know, there, there's a fan base that's divided. The only thing we're not divided on, I think, is that that LSU loss was absolutely horrible and that the Oklahoma loss was pretty embarrassing. Right. And I think that's where things start. You know, you're sort of sitting there 60, 40, you're making excuses for it. And then you end on those three straight losses only look good against Alabama and the other two, uh, obviously not, not ideal. So, you know, that that's the reality is if the last three games become a more common occurrence, or if, you know, he's dressed up like a Wookiee next year after Halloween, after the game <laughs> in Halloween, then, you know, people might get upset and it might cause some issues. But yeah, I, I think Dan Mullen's going to be around for a long time for a lot of reasons. One is I think that there isn't a college job that's better than Florida. Two is, is that I don't think the NFL necessarily wants somebody who has had some of the PR issues that he's had over the last couple of years. I think three, who is Florida going to get that's better? You know, we ha- we still have that awful episode in the past where we were extolling the virtues of Chip Kelly. And boy, I mean, what would we be saying if Chip Kelly was the head coach at Florida right now? Because there you wouldn't be winning any games and the recruiting would be terrible. I'm not um, sure he'd be the head coach right now. We'd probably be talking about we're probably t- we're probably talking about Mullen being the head coach coming into this year. <laughs> if they had yeah. Chip Kelly, then and Taggart might still be at FSU because they got a better <laughs> record. But yeah, so I mean, I, I get all that. Right. I get all that. At the same time, you know, the um, I think I think most of us suspected that that there was tension between the administration and Mullen. Hayes' article makes it seem like the tension is more significant than maybe that I had that, that I had thought at least. And and, and this so is not his first time. You know, he what, about a month or a month and a half ago, he had another article that basically laid out everything that you know that where the tension from the admin and the uh and, and Mullen come from. Yeah, but again, you know, you're you're dealing with a pandemic, you're dealing with fundraising and all the things that that, that entails. And when you've got your fan base, or at least a significant portion of your fan base, ticked off at the way the head coach is acting in certain instances, both really off the field more than on the field, um, it makes your job more difficult, right? So we've all had difficult 
employees or direct reports or bosses and you know you sort of have to you feel like you're walking on eggshells from time to time as you're trying to sort of fix a relationship where you know originally it was great and then somebody did something that wasn't perfect and you got to go fix that and that's probably where florida is at this point um you know hayes i think hayes does represent the older gator fan more than he does the younger gator fan and that's where i i do think that the divide in terms of um, in terms of the off-field stuff, especially, um, does have an age disparity, right? I think the younger kids like some of the attitude, like some of the spouting off, and the and some of the more experienced Gator fans maybe are a little bit less tolerant to that stuff. But you know, the reality is, is as long as the money's coming in from the boosters, nobody's gonna care. Um, and hey, it could be worse. We could have like a Freedom of Information Act releasing a bunch of emails that are talking about, you know like Texas does with the eyes of Texas and all that stuff going on over there. So, uh, you know, the off season, there's nothing to talk about. So when something like this comes out, that's, that's one of the things you got to deal with. Yeah. And pretty much the base of the article. And I, and I agree with it. And that, you know, we even without this article, you can still say it, keep winning. Doesn't matter. <laughs> so it's really all it boils down to, uh, Will quickly, quickly. Uh, I, had, I had had a whole episode uh, about it when the news broke uh, on Sunday. Eric Gilbert uh, decommitting from Florida from the transfer portal transfer from LSU. Of course, uh, you wrote a really, really nice article um, detailing your thoughts on it. We'll get into the wide receiver portion of your article and some of the the stats and analytics you pull from there as we get to some of the questions here in the episode. But uh, on the surface thought of Eric Gilbert and no longer uh, being committed to the Gators. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is, is that you hope everything is okay with Gilbert, right? I mean, he left LSU in the middle of the season last year, um, decides to transfer to Florida a month later, decides he's going to transfer someplace else. You know, there, there've been rumors about grades and certainly, you know, you had sort of mentioned that you weren't necessarily going to get into the personal stuff um, on, on Twitter and some people gave you a hard time for it, but I think the reality is, is it does sound like from some of the things that various people have said that there's more than just um, than just football when it comes to where Gilbert's going to end up playing. And so you wish him well. As far as the program is concerned, I mean, you know, one of the things that we've sort of been pushing back on is is that you want good, high quality high school recruiting because the the transfer portal has risks and rewards. It's a high variant strategy and bringing in a guy like Gilbert has an opportunity to bring you closer in talent level to the rivals that you're struggling to recruit against at the high school level. But losing him has the alter, the opposite effect, right? Is that you sort of held that spot for him anticipating he was going to come. Maybe you would have done some things differently if, if Gilbert, if you knew he wasn't going to be there and more than anything, the advantage of the transfer portal, at least for Mullen thus far has been his ability to hit Right, that Trevon yeah. Grimes and Van Jefferson and and Adam Schuler and John Grenard have all been big time contributors to the program, and if you're getting a hundred percent hit on the transfer portal, then it really kind of makes it worth it because you're probably only going to get 30, 40, 50% max hits at the high school level when you bring in those recruits. And so if you're getting 100% on a guy you bring in and only get two years from him, that's probably as good as a four-year high school commit, right? Like that's probably on average what you're going to get out of a couple of high school commits. But when you start hitting at a much lower level, well, now it starts to really impact things. And I think the jury's still out on a lot of the five-star guys that, that Mullins brought in. You know, I mean – 
Brenton Cox played last year, but wasn't like a real difference maker. Justin Shorter played last year, but didn't look like a real difference maker. Lorenzo Lingard's coming off of a big knee injury at Miami, played like three or four plays last year. I think we expected him to get more run than he did. And then you've got Demarcus Bowman coming in, who obviously is a very, very skilled player. At the same time, you know, he hasn't shown it at the college level yet. We hope he gets the opportunity to, but a wheel route during uh, during Instagram time during spring practice isn't going to convince me that he's a difference maker until he's actually out there on the field. So, um, you know, Gilbert was one of those guys who could help differentiate the program. He was one of those guys who who was going to require the defense to pay attention to where he was and was going to make the defense make some uncomfortable choices because LSU did this a lot where they'd split him out wide, very similar to very similarly to the way that Florida did with Kyle Pitts. It's not saying he was going to be Kyle Pitts or is going to be Kyle Pitts, but having a guy at the tight end position where you have to pay attention to him and you can't just sort of say, all right, we don't, you know, we'll bring in our linebacker because we don't have to worry about guarding that guy. You know, that's a big deal. So it hurts the offense short term. I think it hurts the offense even more long term because in 2022, when you had Emory Jones or Anthony Richardson or whoever ends up being the starting quarterback with a full year under his belt, having a guy like Eric Gilbert with a full year of the offense under his belt as well was going to mean he was going to be a real weapon. Very similarly to the jump that we saw Pitts take from 2019 to 2020. Yep, yep. So, yep, uh, last episode, you can go uh, get more of my thoughts there. There's Will's thoughts and go to Will's site, readingreaction.com, to check more of his thoughts there on the Eric Gilbert situation. And we'll see where he ends up. We'll see, and uh, hopefully all uh, ends up well there. All right, before we get into our questions, everybody, thanks for sending them in. Uh, remember, you can find Gators Breakdown at news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. There you'll find all the Gators Breakdown episodes as well as News 4 Jacks coverage of the Gators. You can head there and sign up for the new uh uh, Gators Breakdown newsletter called Chomp. Uh, News4Jacks.com. Find it there under uh, the newsletters tab. Help us out here on Gators Breakdown. Please share, rate, and review the show on YouTube. A lot of you watching right now, hit that like button. Hit that subscribe button. It really helps us out with the YouTube algorithm out there. And um, find us on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. Will, let's get to the first question here from at B. Saloni. He goes, do you think... We'll use Anthony Richardson in specialty packages, similar to how Emory was used last year. Unlike with Trask and Emory, AR and Emory has seemed to have more similar skill sets. So <laughs> well, we can go to this one pretty easily because uh, you and I were both discussing Mullins' press conference yesterday, and this comes on the heels of Mullins said he'll play multiple quarterbacks early in the season, and that meant – uh, to some, what sounded like a quarterback competition. <laughs> and uh, look, uh, yeah, I fully expect Richardson to push Emory Jones, but you know, Emory's going to get every chance uh, in the spring, fall camp, early season to prove he's the guy first, uh, unless Richardson just completely blows the doors uh, off the competition. Mullen likes to go with, with the experienced player here at the quarterback position, but also but also have guys ready to go. Uh, he's played multiple guys since he's been the coach here. So I don't know why this caught so many off guard with, with him mentioning this and, and playing multiple quarterbacks. Now these two do have a, more of a similar skill set uh, than you know, uh, Felipe Franks and Embry Jones or a Kyle Trask and Embry Jones. But like Mullen said, it, it's making sure you get guys ready and, and have uh, and look this season specifically. You didn't have it last season, but Anthony Richardson did play a little bit. Anyway, you have those easier games early in the season. So, of course, you're going to play multiple quarterbacks earlier on uh, in the se- in the season. That should be the expectation. 
but going kind of more to the question here, you know, I can still see a package for Anthony Richardson. We discussed this when we did our offensive preview, um, you know, a, a little while ago that, you know, still see a package for Anthony Richardson while Emory's starting. And, and I do wonder, will he be limited to mostly running like Emory or will it, or will Mullen let him throw it uh, a bit more? I still think with his frame, you let him take some of those short yardage carries and move a pile if need be to save Emory from taking so many hits. Uh, but I, I just think the biggest question is, does it get to a point where Richardson forces Mullen's hands Mullen's hand in, in getting more snaps or, or taking the job because of the play of Emory and or Richardson just, you know, improving so much that he forces a takeover. Uh, so, you know, extending on what Mullen said in his latest press conference, you know, spring, Spring's being used to throw a lot at these guys to see what they can handle and then dial it, dial it back to see what they do well uh, to keep doing what they do well. So, you know, whichever player proves they can handle more than the other will ultimately uh, be the quarterback. And the early expectation is Emory's he's got a leg up, you know, He's been groomed for the position for the for, for the last few seasons. He's got the experience rolling into the season. It's going to take a lot, you know. If, if a lot of people want to take Mullins' comments to to mean a starting quarterback, it's going to take a lot for Emory Jones not to be the starter. So yeah, I, I think the expectation should be some packages for Anthony Richardson, using probably similar to how we've seen Emory Jones, unless he just goes out there and improves and forces Mullins' hands that he can go and throw the ball more. Yeah, I mean, I'll believe that Anthony Richardson's going to get a lot of play when I actually see it. Um, I thought Emory Jones was going to get a lot of play when Felipe Franks went down, and it turned out that Kyle Trask was the backup quarterback and was an awfully good player. So, I mean, you know, it's one of those things where you wonder whether whether what they were missing in practice that Trask wasn't in there in the first place, but then also what they saw in Trask that made them put him put them put him in front of Emory instead of having Emory come in at the at the backup position when when Franks went down. You know, you look at guys like Dak Prescott, who obviously are very skilled guys, able to go to the NFL, similar build when it comes to, you know, comparison to Anthony Richardson. And Prescott still got very limited play his freshman year. And then in his sophomore year, you know, Tyler Russell still threw 109 balls on, uh, you know, in his sophomore year, even when Dak took over. So even if you were grooming Anthony Richardson to take over, Emory Jones is still going to get plenty of uh, plenty of run. And then the other thing is you mentioned it already. You know, the fact that Emory Jones is 210 pounds, Anthony Richardson's 235 um, and a couple inches taller, those goal line runs that, you know, the one I'm thinking about specifically is against Oklahoma. I think Emory Jones basically buried his head and, and really went after a touchdown, got it against Oklahoma. But you don't want him taking those hits over a, over a 12 or 13 game season. Like that's just not something that you want your starting quarterback to be doing. And so I think Richardson's going to get those those types of opportunities. And then and then the cupcakes will free him up to throw a little bit more. But I, I'm really not expecting to see two quarterback systems. I think Mullen, you know, I do wonder whether Urban Meyer sort of Turn, twisted his arm a little bit to get him to do the Chris Leak, Tim Tebow exchange. Like, I, I wonder whether that was specific to Meyer wanting to get his five-star guy that he had recruited into mm -hmm. the game, somebody that everybody was excited about. They sort of saw, hey, this worked and kept going with it. But was that dictated by Urban Meyer? And Dan Mullen is, is really sort of constitutionally against it because it feels like that's not something that he has done since. Now, he hasn't had somebody as gifted as Richardson, since Tebow and Leak were in there. So maybe that changes a little bit. But, you know, the fact that he was. And never really had a quarterback coming into the program as talented as Tebow to really even try it. 
you know, sure. now Prescott ended up being that, but not coming in that way. Sure. But I mean, again, I, I go back to last year. I really expected Emory Jones to get a lot of running mm-hmm. because and and that they would allow him to throw every once in a while. Now, obviously, they let him throw, I think, on the second drive of the year against Old Miss. And then he threw a pick on a, on a deep throw and then they didn't let him throw for like four straight games after that. And <laughs> and so, you know, maybe he was earning that. Right. I mean, maybe he wasn't performing in, in practice and so they weren't giving him the opportunity. But it really did surprise me during the year how little they let him throw because you knew what was coming this year. Right. I mean, you pretty much knew Kyle Trask was going to be gone and that you were going to have to you would wanted to get experience. So when you're up by 30 points against Vanderbilt, you know, chuck the ball around a little bit. Right. When you fall behind against, uh, you know, against Alabama or something, chuck the ball around. Like whenever you had an opportunity to get him in there, I'm surprised that they didn't throw the ball as much. Even in the game against Oklahoma, they really didn't throw the ball all that much in the second half. Now he wasn't real successful in the second half. I think he was like three and nine or three of 10 or something like that in the second half against Oklahoma. But you know, that just has not been Mullins MO. So I'm not expecting it from Richardson. I think Richardson's going to get, you know, 32 to 40 throws next year. And Jones is going to get the, you know, 250 because they're not going to throw it 500 times like they did last year. But Jones will get 250. Richardson will get, you know, 50, 60, 70 throws, maybe. Um, and, and that'll be it, right? He's going to get his feet wet a little bit, but nothing, nothing major and nothing that actually impacts the, the, um, the nature of the season, unless it's a running play in the red zone. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there's a contingent out there that thinks he can, he can give Emory a push uh, out there, but it's not going to come this spring. I, I don't yeah. think it's going to be something we'll see uh, in the fall. There was a contingent last year that thought Jones was going to be out trash. <laughs> so, you know, yep. I mean, the reality backup is court, always, always a contingent of a backup quarterback, <laughs> always the most popular guy in the room. <laughs> All right. Zach Permenter uh, said this. He goes, do you think the offensive line outside of Josh Braun will be capable of generating enough push to open up running lanes to complement the stable of backs Florida has this year? Seems like Hevesy has not been able to field a squad that can get much done in that department yet. So we, we really hit this hard, some some of this hard last week. Uh, and you can catch most of it there when we were discussing when we saw the, the starting offensive line now at, at the first practice. But, you know, going with this part and the tail end of the question here is like you feel that basically heavily being able to field a squad that can get um, that hasn't been able to get much done yet. Look, it starts at recruiting and, and guys not getting on campus. Uh, you know, the best recruit at the position was Isaiah Walker. Never played it down for Florida. You have three four stars from the 2019 class that never played down from Florida on the offensive line. William Murray, Diave Hammond, Wardrick Wilson will never play a game for Florida. At one point, you had all these guys that should be competing for spots all along the offensive line. And for one reason or another, never played it down, never will play it down for the Gators. So when it's all so so when it's said by fans that Hevesy hasn't been able to field a squad that can that, that can get much done in that department yet. Look no further than, than that right there uh, and, and and the recruiting and guys not getting – I mean, the recruiting part, I guess, was good, but you just didn't get them on campus. You you, you, you got them committed. You got them signed. They used counters. That's where it hurts you too. Uh, but they never were able to get on the field. Uh, so, now, that doesn't really do anything for spring, of course. That's where you got to look and what they're going to focus on this spring. But, you know, that's why I think if you're looking at the offensive line and for improvement, you know, it's just you, you're not having a big talent infusion to try and get some production there. So, we hit on it last week, as I said, but briefly again, the focus 
you know, back to a run focused offense should benefit the offense. I, I think it suits what John Hevesy has been used to in his coaching career and, and developing players in his career for that style of offense. And we'll go back to 2018. And, and by the end of the season with a running game split between Jordan Scarlett and LaMichael P. Ryan with a bit, with a bit of Felipe Frank sprinkled in the run offense was a force uh, toward the end of the, in, in, or in, in Dan Mullen's first season especially toward the end of that year, you know, with all the change from McIlwain to Mullen, by the time 2018 ended, that was a team strength, the offensive line and, and the run game. So th- there is, there is hope there. Uh, so now, you know, this spring so far, uh, kind of going around and asking, you not surprised the defensive line's kind of ahead, ahead of the offensive line. Um, offensive line's replacing Brett Heggie at center, Stone Forsyth at tackle, who was playing really well last season. So as this change in focus happens this spring for the offensive line, you know, don't need to catch up with inserting the new pieces at the same time. So to answer the question, I really do think the offensive line will complement the run game as it's what Hevesy is known for. And I think, you know, having a quarterback that can run will help. But we'll also symbiotic here, I think, with the running backs. The running backs will help this offensive line. But it may take some time. It may take a, like a 2018 to where it's going to be in the second half of the season before you see it really all click. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I hope not. I, I think I think we're in for a long season if the offensive line isn't really kicking in. I, I think part of it is is that you know there there were a lot there was a lot of discussion in in sort of gator media this week about missing spring practice and last year and how much that impacted the team and i think there are times where you look at it and say okay that's an excuse that everybody had to deal with that and that you know not lining up correctly for senior senior players shouldn't be a problem when you're when, when you miss spring practice but I think at the offensive line position, particularly with Stuart Reese coming in, some of the continuity there, moving guys around a little bit to make sure that they, uh, you know, that they were able to to accommodate Reese, did impact continuity on the offensive line. That's something that's really important. Also, strength, right? You talk about the 2019 class, the 2020 guys that they brought on the offensive line. Um, you know, all of those guys didn't necessarily have strength and conditioning, and and we saw that in the fourth quarter. So if you think about the fourth quarter for Florida last year they didn't really win many fourth quarters at all. They certainly lost the fourth quarter against LSU. They definitely lost against Oklahoma. They lost against Texas A&M. And even against teams like Tennessee and Kentucky, you know, the fourth quarter when we thought they should be putting those teams away, they just weren't doing it. And in some in some cases, that was because they couldn't run the ball. I think in some cases it was because they were trying and and really couldn't run the ball. And then I think some of it was is that the offense was just geared to do what Kyle Trask does best right and that's chuck the ball all over the place if you're averaging 12 yards a play you know why bother running the ball and so i think a lot of times they got away from it and by the time they got to the fourth quarter the defense wasn't wasn't exhausted and so you just kept throwing the ball because that was the best way to move the move the ball and, and run the clock so i think this year they're going to have more emphasis on it right i don't think it's going to be 45 percent run and 55 percent passing um I think the fact that, you know, it's a big deal that you have an extra blocker if Emory Jones is running. Um, that ma- that makes a huge difference. So one guy misses a block, it doesn't matter. Jones still just has to make one guy miss. If everybody hits their block, Jones doesn't have to make anybody miss, and he's off to the races. 
And then having the dual threat where the safeties aren't necessarily going to be able to cheat up like they did when Emory got the ball last year, but now they'll actually have to respect the pass a little bit. Or you get one-on-one and it opens up stuff on the outside. Um, I think that's going to help the offensive line too, right? That when Emory Jones was in last year, the defensive line was able to, or the defense in particular, the defensive, the safeties and linebackers were able to cheat. They won't be able to do that this year. And then when, um, you know, the, the sort of slow developing RPOs, things like that, you know, the running backs were not equipped to take the ball to the house. That's the reality is that LaMichael P. Ryan left. Damian Pierce was okay, but wasn't great. And they didn't have somebody who was able to take the ball to the house. And that's the other thing is that I think DeMarcus Bowman, if he's who we think he is, is going to make the offensive line look a lot better than they did last year just by virtue of being DeMarcus Bowman. And you put him and Emory Jones in the backfield, that's where the offensive line improves is mm-hmm. you get a guy who can make somebody miss, who can turn a 10-yard gain into an 80-yard gain, and all of a sudden the statistics look way better because the offensive line doesn't even need to do its job that much more often. They just need to have a guy who's able to make the defense pay when they get out of position in the same way that Trask was able to make a defense pay last year when they got out of position through the air. Well, I'll go back to a minute. Do you think I'm making too much out of it, uh, the whole Hevesy thing? Um, I mean, go back to the time at Mississippi State and, and the offense they ran most of the time there. It'd been a run-focused, run-first approach. Uh, and I'm not sure he was so suited for developing an offensive line that needed to drop back and pass protect 40, 45 times a game. Maybe, 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 maybe this is what he needs. And, you know, if, if, you know, Florida's recruited quarterbacks that you would think they could go back and go to that style where they're dropping back 40 times a game and maybe Florida needs to assess what they do at offensive line coach uh, when, when they make that move uh, to that style of quarterback again. But, you know, there's, there's, uh, could, could that hold some weight that this style of offense helps an offensive line coach like him? Maybe a little bit. I, I think it does go back to – it points out recruiting, right? I mean, we, yeah. we harp on it all the time, and, and it's important. That's why we harp on it all the time. And, you know, I think people understand the concept of a three-down linebacker, right? That A guy who can go out there that you don't have to take off the field, whether it's a running play or a pass play. So you think about a guy like Ray Lewis, right, out there playing linebacker. You never had to take him off the field because he was skilled enough to do everything he needed to do as a middle linebacker. Well – who does Florida have on the offensive line that you'd say is a true three-down offensive lineman, right? Like I, I pointed out, I think, last week that I think DeLance was actually decent, maybe even better than decent when it came to the running game. I think he probably graded out pretty well when it came to the running game. The problem is they didn't emphasize the running game last year, so that skill was not necessarily the best skill for your right tackle to have. So this and Stuart, year – Stuart Reeves, who they brought in, you know, what did he? What, what kind of offense did he play in under Mullen and Hevesy? He was well, there with Nick Fish. He was there when Nick Fisher was a quarterback. So of course it was a run-focused offense. Well, and this is one of the reasons why oftentimes you'll recruit a tackle and then you'll move him inside to guard yeah. because the guy's limited in terms of his ability to be a tackle. Like he just doesn't have the physical capability of doing all the things you're going to ask a tackle to do. You move him into guard, and all of a sudden he's a really, really good guard. Well. Again, if you're if you're bringing in guys who are low level three star, high level three star, those guys can still be very very good. But usually, they're going to have some physical limitations, right? So when when Alabama recruited Alex Leatherwood and Florida was recruiting Alex Leatherwood, everyone knew Leatherwood was going to be a first round <laughs> NFL draft pick when, when he came in, right? Same thing with uh, oh, who's the guy Petit Frere up mm-hmm. at Ohio State, right? Everybody knew he was going to be a multiple year starter at Ohio State at tackle. 
and you start looking at the teams that are making the playoffs and all of those teams have guys on the offensive line who have been there for two or three years, who've built continuity, who are highly skilled. And really, I think. Well, you're talking about special leather, how special Leatherwood is when Alabama beat Georgia for the national championship game. He was playing left tackle in the national championship game as a true freshman. That's how special he was. It turns out he's pretty good. So, (laughs) you know, it's funny. People people complain about the recruiting rankings and how they're biased and that sort of stuff. I I think you know I wrote an article maybe a month ago talking about how I would how I would recruit if I was struggling, and the the premise was spend all your money on getting the five stars and then bring in three stars because the three stars and the four stars, the differentiation is relatively small, but those can't miss prospects are the ones that really make a difference um, it, long-term for your program. Offensive line's a little bit less important because I think you can paper over some holes there, but you know, that's what I would, that's what I would say is the concept of a three of a three down linebacker that applies to offensive line. It's just, you don't necessarily think of it that way, but you're going to have offensive linemen who can pass protect better. You're going to have offensive linemen who can run block better. If you find one who can do both, and can do them both really, really effectively. Well, then you're talking about a guy who's probably a high level four star or a five star guy, because those are things that you'll be able to pick up from a scouting perspective. You'll be able to see a guy who's got quick feet and is able to do, you know, who's got who who just has the ability and and the strength and all those different things that you can pick up at camps. Like, you know, the seven on seven, I think oftentimes maybe glosses over some things, but I think from an offensive line perspective, when you see a guy manhandle all the people he's going up against, it tells you something about him. It's the guys who are sort of the tweeners that you have trouble figuring out, okay, what's this guy going to project to, to the next level. And Florida has a lot of those guys. Yep. Yep. Uh, perfect transition here. Uh, Kavron Harris, a good friend in the program says we all know offensive line, um, has to, um, has to you know, be better. Of course he goes, but give me the next position group who has to take the biggest step. And he mentions linebacker and then Zach uh, Permenter says outside of Miller and Diabate, who do you think would be getting major snaps among the younger backers. So since Kevin Harris mentioned linebackers and there was a question about him from Zach as well, you know, we'll, we'll concentrate on that. Going back to Kevin though, uh, next position group that has to take the biggest step. I think you can say linebacker as well, but I'll probably put the secondary <laughs> up there as well. Uh, when you look at it from, from, from my perspective, we can get into that to, at a different time. We've discussed it in, in some of the previous episodes here, but, Something um, that I think helps here when we take a look at this linebacker group. And Ventral Miller, he's missing some time this spring, uh, minor injury there. Uh, but look, that helps a bit with getting some younger guys some reps that who probably need the reps, who did, get, who did not get the reps uh, last year. So the obvious answers here are, you know, the two names that we heard so much last season, Tyron Hopper, Derek Wingo, those are the guys. Those are the guys that need to be fighting for snaps at the linebacker position. And this is their first spring. Huge for those guys. Both needed some development, uh, whether it be putting on some weight or just getting on the field for experience. With no spring, uh, a different kind of fall camp uh, last year for these young guys. It was going to be tough to see the field. Now this spring, especially with Miller missing some time, these younger players get experience. Staff gets to see what they do well. And for Hopper, you know, it, playing very athletic, very fast to the ball, making big hits, but need to play consistently and within the scheme of the defense. For Wingo, you know, it's a bit of a transition. Uh, he rushed off the edge in high school. Uh, we need to fit into that uh, you know, inside linebacker role if he's going to play linebacker for Florida. So there's an adjustment period that, that's going to take place there with Wingo, maybe why he didn't see him on the field a whole lot last year. He rushed off the edge in high school. 
new position for him to play linebacker. So you, you think he was going to get off to a fast start last season? Uh, that probably wasn't going to happen. He wasn't going to get that last season with no spring and a different kind of fall camp. So, you know, and, you know, to play that role of, of linebacker, he needed to add some weight as well. So, you know, both of these guys needed to mature a bit for, from last season to hit the ground running this spring. And look, and especially James Houston transferring out. Another opportunity with Miller being out uh, this spring uh, with a with, you know, hampered by an injury, James Houston transferred out not long ago. It, it benefits Florida to have, you know, these guys develop into playmakers this season and, and, and more importantly this spring now. The the opportunity is there for them to get the reps and, and develop this spring. Uh, and I think that can allow the staff to move Mamoudi Abate around if they want and rush off the edge a bit more. Uh, but like we discussed last week, you know, Diabate, uh, also Bernie, did get better at linebacker towards the end of 2020 and now have a spring after that foundation. But adding guys like Hopper and Wingo gives this position a lot more flexibility Probably a lot more athleticism overall, Will. Uh, one player, probably one, one more worth mentioning as well is David Reese returning from an injury last season after also being injured the year before. He's been discussed as having the tools, but uh, just can't really get on the field because of all the injuries. Has to start coming together for him this spring as well. Yeah, I think when I think about linebacker for the 2021 season, I think about Diabate. Like he's the guy who, you, again, you talk about three three down linebackers. Diabate is the guy who has the skill to be a three down linebacker. Ventral Miller, I actually love a lot of things about him, but side to side covering running backs out of the backfield. I mean, they, Alabama really took advantage of Florida's linebackers in whole, Diabate included, with Najee Harris in that SEC championship game, and and Diabate, I think more because of positioning and and instincts than it was necessarily because of physical limitations. And Diabate really has some unbelievable closing speed when it comes to getting to the quarterback once he realizes that that he has the opportunity to rush when when the running back doesn't go out of the backfield or something like that. Um, you know, you mentioned Bernie. I think Bernie has an opportunity potentially to take a step up, but we've been waiting for that now for two or three years. And we've seen a guy who struggles at times. We've seen a guy who really struggles in coverage. Um, and we'll see whether he's able to pull that together. I do think that Miller may be missing some reps this spring. Helps Bernie in particular because he's going to be one of those veterans that they sort of rely on to teach some of the younger guys. The other thing, and I was thinking about this the other day, Chris Bogle, Actually, he's listed as a linebacker in some mm -hmm. in sub publications. And really, with Jeremiah Moon coming back and with all the bucks that they've recruited, like I, I think Bogle really was effective off the edge last year. But one of the things I'm, you know, but so was Diabate a couple of years ago. And I'm wondering whether they actually decide that Bogle has the speed because he's got the same kind of closing speed. And I wonder whether maybe they'll think about playing Bogle in more of a traditional linebacker role. Because if all of a sudden you've got Moon on the outside, the two transfer defensive tackles, you got Zach Carter on the other side, Brenton Cox coming off the edge, and then you've got and, and then you've got Bogle and Diabate out there at linebacker. You've got more talent on the field than you did last year. Maybe those guys aren't necessarily experienced. but So I haven't heard anything about Bogle coming off you know, from having his hand in the dirt, but that's a guy I'd look at if I was Florida and say he's got closing speed. He's got the ability to hang with guys in coverage, um, you know, and, and why waste that? by having him zone blitz every once in a while. Let's get him out there, teach him to be a linebacker in some circumstances, particularly against running, you know, against running formations, maybe get him a little bit more variation in terms of his ability to rush the quarterback, put him rushing right behind Brenton Cox with a couple of stunts being run. And all of a sudden you can imagine the offensive line for the opposition having some real issues. 
Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that pinged in my head, and I think it was the Peach Bowl. But CC Jefferson was lining up as a linebacker in some sets. Now, don't get me wrong. You're not going to ask him to play linebacker, but in Todd Grantham's defense where he likes to rotate guys and come up with something exotic at times, um, CC Jefferson was up there in the middle of the in the middle of the field in one of the linebacker spots. So you could maybe see somebody like Bogle in some spots, like you're saying. You know, if this defense can get its legs under him and, and and stop the communication issues and actually go out there and just develop things like this, you could see some players that you wouldn't necessarily normally see in that spot. In 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 you know a few a few plays a game there, just you know in certain situations. Yeah, well, we also have like 21 blue chip bucks under scholarship. <laughs> so, you know, we, at some point we got to figure out what to do with the ball, get the best guys on the field. So, that, I mean, that would be something you could potentially explore in the spring, right? Is take yeah. a guy who's shown that explosion, who's shown the closing speed. That's the thing is when you look at Diabate, his ability to go from zero to 60 and get to the quarterback, big, long strides, get to the quarterback quick, even when it's a delayed blitz, even when he's waiting to see what, whether the running back's going to release, all those sorts of things. And then, immediately being able to get in the quarterback's face against Terry Wilson in Kentucky in particular, he terrorized Kentucky um, from, from the linebacker position and getting in Wilson's face. If you can do the same thing with a guy like Bogle, or if you can get Bernie more comfortable, cause he's got, he, he doesn't seem to have the closing speed, but he has some good coverage skills. And so the question is if you get him in the right position, do those coverage skills all of a sudden start to become instinct and then you get that benefit as well. So um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, you know, Grantham has been a little bit mum on what uh, on what went wrong last year. He really doesn't want to talk about last year. So <laughs> we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully he'll talk about this year a little bit and give us a little bit of insight into what's going on the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, Chief Borders, too, uh, seems to be turning some heads out there, two freshmen out there, early enrollee. Um, maybe can uh, insert himself in there. Like, as I kind of said, I think Florida needs some more true linebackers, and I think uh, him recruited as a true linebacker could really help. Uh, the Gators there in early in early spring help, help himself as also uh, not necessarily getting the rotation this year, but spring's a good time to set a launching pad for uh, future seasons as well. So crunch time sports advantage uh, since this, I've been on his podcast a few times and um, he was asking, he goes with all the departing receiving production, who has to step up and become the primary option well, I think this one's easy. Of course, I think you have to start with Jacob Copeland. Uh, you know, here seeing he's the most experienced wide receiver returning. Can he could take that Kadarius Tony style leap? Uh, I think that's the the question we have to ask ourselves here. Has to fix some drop issues uh, that we saw at times last year. But you see, you've seen it early in these early drills. You know, it's dangerous. How how much we can? I think you and. I think we and Thomas Goldcamp had the conversation on Twitter about how much can you actually take away from all these videos that Florida's putting out on Instagram Live. You can't take a whole lot, but you know I think you still have to mention what you see. And Jacob Copeland's out there. Um, you see in these early drills, he's beating DBs uh, on some of these routes that he's running with your burst, j- just playing beating defensive backs. And don't get me wrong, you know, he's not going to be able to do the things Kadarius Tony was able to do. And that's not a knock on him. Uh, there's not many people out there who can do the things Kadarius Tony was able to do. You know, but you know, it's more about can you do the small things that add up for a big jump uh, like Kadarius Tony did last year. Run the right route. Make the catch. Make defenders miss after the catch or, or, or on a run if, if, you're, if you're getting the ball off of a handoff. So, I mean, Will, in, in Tony's first three seasons, 15 catches in Jim McElwain's final season, then 25 catches, 
10 catches in seven games in 2019 as he was dealing with injuries, and then a huge leap to 70 catches last year for Kadarius Tony. Now, Copeland isn't getting that many. Look, shifting offense is going to determine that and dictate that, but uh, he's not, the shifting offense is going to hurt him there. But can he become that dependable, uh, a, a dependable target like Kadarius Tony? Yeah, one catch his first season, redshirting there, but then in 21 catches in 2019, then 23 last season. That in offense that was spreading the ball around to a lot of playmakers. So now, you know, he, he's the guy that has to become that that stable force in the wide receiver room, become become the leader of the wide receiver group because he he's the most experienced guy. And look, he was Dan Muller's first big-time wide receiver recruit going back to that 2018 class. Yeah, I mean, I think Copeland has the skill. He had eight explosive plays last year, only 23 catches. So averaged 18.9 yards per yards per catch, which was, I think, highest on the team. Um, so he has the explosion. The the things that we're going to be looking for from a from a development standpoint are the consistency and the attitude, right? There were some times last year where there were some things put on Twitter and other things that I think, uh, you know, you want to make sure that your that your juniors and senior leaders aren't necessarily doing that they're leading the group and and even if they're not necessarily getting the ball their way, that they are uh, that they're cheering on their teammates. And you know, it was funny when he had that. I think what was it Grimes who took the ball away from him against Tennessee on the little slant to see them. <laughs> sort of going back and forth you know um and and i think it was all in fun but the, but the thing is you sort of walk on eggshells because it hasn't always been on fun so that, those are sort of the the things you look for from copeland the the bigger thing is who's going to pick up the rest of the rest of the slack right i mean so he had yep. eight eight explosive last year but you think about the four guys they're losing grimes tony copeland and pitts they combined for 50 of the gators 75 explosive plays in 2020 but they also accounted for 24 of the 55 explosives in 2019. So people are going to say, oh, well, you know, we lost four wide receivers in 2019 and we didn't skip a beat. In fact, everybody got better. Well, that's true, except for that the guys who the guys who came, the guys who stepped up last year are all guys who had a track record of having explosive plays. Really? Yeah, well, you, only- didn't, you didn't hear that from us. We, 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 we felt pretty confident about that receiver group last year and both of us. You know, we don't see that production returning again for 2021. No, I wrote an article last year looking at those explosives saying, hey, I think they're going to be okay. I don't know whether they'll be fantastic. Turned out they were fantastic, and a lot mm-hmm. of that was due to Tony really stepping up. But, you know, the, the the only guys who really stepped up other than Copeland to deliver explosive plays wasn't even really one guy. It was a combination of the mm-hmm. running backs. You had Malik Davis with six, and then you had Naquan Wright and Damian Pierce with another five between the two of them. So you got 11 explosive plays out of the running backs. The problem is, is that if Demarcus Bowman's playing running back, then those guys who were your explosive playmakers are either sitting on the bench or you got to find a different place to put them. So we've talked a little bit about having two back sets. We've talked a lot about, I think people expect there's probably going to be some opportunities to split Malik Davis out wide. Um, You know, you're going to have them in the screen game, those sorts of things. But there's only so many balls to go around to running backs. You can split four wide receivers out. It's, you're not going to play a game with four four running backs on the field. And, and so they need guys. You know whether it's whether it's Whittemore, Henderson, Frazier, Shorter. You know Shorter only had two explosive plays last year. Whittemore had three. So Whittemore actually did show a little bit of explosion because he wasn't necessarily out there all the time. Zipper had three. Gamble had three. Henderson had one. Um, you know, so and Mullen Mullen said um, Demarcus Weston might be the fastest player on the team, so maybe we finally get to see uh, you know Weston enter, enter the rotation here as well. Yeah, I just said the same thing I said about the quarterback throwing the ball. Right, I don't believe it yeah. when I see it. Right, that that yeah. they they are consistent in terms of 
putting guys out there who've already done it. Now, one of the things the pandemic did is that um, because there weren't any cupcakes last year, because they didn't have a spring practice, they're going to be forced to put some people out there this year who haven't already done it just because there isn't anybody who has, right? There, there, there isn't going to be anybody you're going to be able to put out there. But I well, think this is part of why they had the two units last year. Where there you go. Pull, That's where I was going. Yeah. Pull pits and all those guys off and have the second unit on there. So they've at least gotten a little bit of experience. So if I'm looking at where the – where the plays are going to come from, it's from that second unit, right? That was out there last year. So guys like Shorter and Whittemore and Zipper are probably the guys you're sort of looking for to to fill that void. I'm just not real confident that they're going to be able to do it for two reasons. One is that they don't have the same track record that Pitts and Tony and and uh, and Grimes did. You know, say what you will about Tony in in 2019, but he had a track record of when he touched the ball. He, he generated explosive plays and he made the offense move. And that goes all the way back to his first year with Jim McElwain as well. Like when Tony touched the ball, he was magic. It was that they never got him the ball very much. And then he got injured in 2019. Um, I haven't seen that yet with with these guys, right? The only, the only real play I can remember for Zipper of any significance was the play where he sort of pushed off against the DB against Georgia and really gave him a big play after Georgia had gone up 14 to nothing. That's a big deal, but that's the only time I really remember it. Whittemore, there were a couple of jump balls he went and got that Trash threw up to him that I don't necessarily think were great throws and was able to get those. Gamble hit a couple of – hit the big one from the end zone against Vanderbilt, um, hit the big one against Georgia. Um no, but again, Zipper the, the, had, didn't Zipper have one in against Arkansas as well? I believe they had the, there was that little stretch there after Pitts went down at the, the Georgia game where you know you Zipper and, and Gamble did some nice things. But yeah. I, I guess my point is that, like I, I'm not yeah. sure I remember one explosive play from Kyle Pitts last year because there were explosive plays all over the place. Right? You, it's right. hard to pinpoint one or two. We're sort of sitting here and saying, "Hey, these guys have the ability to yeah. do it." The question is, is the quarterback going to be able to deliver the ball? Is the offensive line going to give them the time? And then is the offense even going to be tailored towards having those explosive plays? So, um, yeah, we'll see. I, I think Demarcus Bowman is is really going to have to be what we think he is for this offense to be fantastic. I think if he is, you know, if he is adjusting to the college game and isn't necessarily taking the ball to the house, you know, every other game. And, you know, if Emory Jones gets a little bit nicked and can't run the ball quite as well, then the offense is going to struggle a little bit. Cause I don't think they definitely don't have a guy that they could just say, run a back shoulder fade and we're going to chuck it up to you. Right. And last year when they need, when they got one-on-one on pits, it was a back shoulder fade every time. And, you know, is that read going to be there? Do they have that player? who they're confident that they can just throw it up every time. And, you know, again, nobody's going to be Kyle Pitts, but they don't have that track record, so it concerns me, right? I mean, Georgia Georgia two years ago had to replace all their wide receivers, and Jake Fromm really struggled. And part of the reason he struggled is they didn't have any track record of anybody who could come in and play consistently, and the wide receivers weren't very consistent, and then Fromm wasn't really able to adjust. That'll be the question, right? I think, I think we all believe Dan Mullen's a better offensive coach than anybody they've had their coach in offense at Georgia. And so his ability to adjust, his ability to put his players in the best position to succeed is what we're banking on. But, you know, at the same time, you, you got to have guys out there who, who can execute your offense and that you trust. And thus far at the receiver position, the only guy out there that I would say Mullen's going to have a whole lot of trust in is Copeland. And like you mentioned, there's been some inconsistency there. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, going into 2018, we probably felt the same way in Demo's first year of, of receivers not living up to the billing of Freddie Swain, of Tyree Cleveland, Josh Hammond, the four-star guys that we were wanting to see more out of. And I think we got a glimpse in 2018 of what those guys could do in 2019, and, and they lived up to the billing. So a lot of credit to Billy Gonzalez there, and hopefully he can work his magic one more time uh, for the 2021 season. Uh, Trey Simpson sends this one in. 
Uh, Will, how good do you think this defensive line can be this year? Do you think this could be the best defensive line in Mullen's tenure at Florida? And extending that, J-Rod says, are the transfers at D-line going to make a big impact or are they just fillers for depth? Um, look, I think this has the chance to become – I don't I don't know if I can say the best. I mean, one of the, like, it'll be year four for, for, for Mullen. But, uh, you know, to kind of comparing here to, to, some of the, to some of them there, I think up the middle, if they get some strong play up the middle – mentioning these transfers i think there's a chance this one can become uh the best but they got to get more production uh, uh pass rushing as far as just figuring out one guy who you can just really count on to do it you know um so it's um uh, there, there's a chance you know you insert shelton you insert new kurt you know can they make instant impacts like mullen says he's looking for transfers to do they were brought to be those type of players uh, along with Gervin Dexter, not the filler types. You know, your, your filler your filler pieces right now are Lamar Goods, Jalen Humphreys, Jalen Lee, uh, and we'll see how the development goes for true freshman Desmond Watson, Christopher Thomas. But, no, you brought in Shelton and Newkirk to come in, play right away, be instant impact guys. They play Power 5 football. They play Big Ten. They play SEC football. Those guys are expected to come in and 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 – produce right away uh, and, and be leaders right away, as Mullen said in the pre-spring press conference. But I, I find it tough to say this can be the best unit until I see a pass rusher at the level of a Jabari Zuniga, Jonathan Grenard, Jakai Polite. Florida had a lot of sacks last season, led to SEC most of the season, finished with 35 sacks. That was one with uh, that was one less game played than Alabama, who led with 36 in the SEC. So the sack numbers were still there. Uh, but you, you you couldn't pinpoint any player and compare what they did to the ones I previously mentioned. So uh, until I see a, a defensive front get pushed and stop the run like they did 2018 and 2019, those fronts and those defensive lines, you know, for, of course, that consisted of uh, of combinations of players like Jacopolite, Jabari Zuniga, C.C. Jefferson, Adam Schuler, Campbell, Slayton, Grenard. I can't put this group up there just yet, but I like the potential with the transfers in the middle, Gervin Dexter, and then some names, you know, uh, Carter Chatfield, Eamon Melan, Brenton Cox. Those are the guys you're going to count on up front that if you're going to put them up there as Dan Mullen's best defensive line, those are guys that are going to have to come up there and prove it. Yeah, I mean, I struggle to say this is going to be their best defensive line for two reasons. One is I think, you know, you look at Ja'Kai Polite had 11 sacks back in 2018. Grenard, I think, had 10 in 2019. Last year, you know, the leader was five for Zach Carter, and then the next was three and a half for Britton Cox. So, yes, Florida led the SEC in sacks. But the other thing is, is the three years in Grantham's scheme, there's been a lot of empty calories when it comes to the sacks, you know, you had 10 mm-hmm. against Miami in 2019. And then, um, you know, we, we thought it was going to be just, you know, terrorizing opposing offensive lines and then got absolutely well, it was 49 shut down. sacks on the season. And you had 18 versus Miami and FSU combined, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess that's my point, right? Is that it's feast or famine with Grantham. And if you're going to call it his best defensive line, then we'll know against Alabama. Right, that that it, that if they can get three or four sacks against Alabama, then you go okay. This is a team that can get sacks against anybody, and that means that guys like Cox, guys like um, you know, guys like Carter, guys like Bogle, guys like Diabate have added to the to the new guys at defensive tackle. That the guys at defensive tackle are probably freeing up the linebackers to allow them to come in and get some sacks, and that uh, you know that the team is a little bit more 
you know, better oiled to do that sort of thing. And and it's not just empty calories. Cause that's the thing against LSU, you know, two years ago against Georgia, two years ago against Georgia, three years ago, it was just, they couldn't get to the quarterback at all. Um, and you saw the same thing last year against Alabama, right? Had no, the defensive line, they got to him a couple of times, but really nothing yeah. that actually changed the game. And that's well, the thing. Been an issue, is, I mean, it's been an issue in, in, in a lot of the big games, Will, that we go to, to, to your point, you know, Georgia, First few years, LSU in 2019, just the, the big games, the pass rush wasn't there. Yeah, well, and that's the deal. If you want to be known as the best defensive line in Grantham's history at Florida, it, it doesn't matter what you do against East Tennessee Tech. Like what matters is, in you know, when you're when you're playing in Jacksonville against Georgia, when the stands are hopefully full again, you know, are you able to put five sacks on on uh, JT Daniels and let us put more memes of him and turtlenecks out there after the game? Oh man. That is that. Oh, that was awful. Like, really, turtlenecks in, in in Georgia for one. I don't know, man. That was that was awful. Hey, I, I am not a. I'm not. I'm, I'm, not, not no, I'm no fashion guy. Don't get me wrong, but man, I'm just. Uh, whew, he brought the California fashion with him to Athens. I don't. I don't think it fits too well. I'm just glad he got rid of the mustache, man, because the mustache <laughs> was a little bit disturbing. But uh, you know, hey, he's uh, he it's he's the perfect foil. For 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 us, right? I mean, he's the Georgia quarterback. Kind of looks like a villain in a superhero movie that you're just sort of rooting against. So I, um, I sent that picture to my Georgia fans. I was like, "There's no way you guys are winning the national championship with this." <laughs> <laughs> well, all I know is that there will be some good memes if Florida's defensive line is able to put Daniels on his back four or five times next year in Jacksonville. And uh, I'm here for it, man. I'm here for it. Yeah. All right. Well, last one here. Hey, special teams. We'll go forget. I, I, a couple people asked about special teams here. And so I think we'll, we'll go that route to end it here. Bradley Wentworth, uh, he goes, what's the special teams outlook? Who's returning kicks? And what does our kick punter situation look like? Not as glamorous, but very important. Not a look, not a whole lot of info out there on special teams. It's just kind of how the nature of the beast for spring practice is just especially when we're not being we're not allowed out there. So we don't control where the camera gets to go and and all that stuff. And I've been I've been asking around, did ask around uh, a little bit. Still not a lot of info out there as far as what they're doing on special teams at the moment. As far as returners go, uh, you know, well, I do wonder if running back depth and, and the focus on offense plays into it a bit. Like if you don't think you could put up as many points as last season, then do you try and steal points on special teams? Uh, You know, look, you don't worry about injury concerns here of a player returning kicks or punts. I think that that comes into it a little bit, but if you got playmakers, Demarcus Bowman, Lorenzo Lingard uh, out there who have shown flashes of speeds, do you get them on special teams just to try and steal some points on there? Look, you don't steal many points on kick returns right now. You don't get, you don't get the return all that many, but punt returns, I think is where you try to look for a place if you want to try and steal some points. So do you put a player back there that you expect to be a big contributor on offense or defense to to return quick to return kicks and look, I, I don't believe in coaching scare because of injuries injuries are part of the game it happens but we'll always go back to 2005 and, and Andre Caldwell getting injured in Myers first year uh his first season there injured on a kickoff return versus Tennessee early in the season he was the electric playmaker in those first few games uh for that Florida offense and then went on to to struggle for for most of the season uh in Urban Meyer's first year but went down on a kickoff return uh in in Meyer's first year for the rest of the season so now this skater team has some options and it's hard to get info about who's out there returning kicks but Bowman Lingard Henderson 
Uh, Weston is, you know, uh, Mullen mentioned him as being the fastest player uh, at, at wide receiver. So maybe you put him back there, but also Finley Graham. I think that's the guy you really have to watch out for. I'm intrigued with that's what he was known for as his role in high school, electric return man in, in, in high school. Think about this, you know, especially punt returns. Yeah, Mullen's got to put somebody, somebody back there he trusts, Will. Yes, he had Tony back there last season, but before that, it was Freddie Swain. And, and someone Mullen knew would go out there and make the right decision most of the time. Player would, that would catch it, not muff the ball, know when to call for a fair catch, a player that wouldn't dance around for a big loss. I think all that trust we saw at Tony at wide receiver last year also translated to him as a punt returner. Mullen trusting uh, as a player finally and, and put him all over the field. You catch the ball, get upfield. You know, don't be don't you know don't be taking huge losses for for uh, um, and put your offense in bad positions there. As far as kicker goes, Jace Christman transferred from Mississippi State, where he was a starting place kicker from 2017 2019. Lost a starting job last season, but 32 of 40 on field goals in his career at Mississippi State with a long of 51. Taking over for you know a somewhat disappointing Evan McPherson uh, last season after he missed five field goals, including that game ender versus LSU to try and force overtime there. Uh, putter will be Australian Jeremy Crawshaw had two punts versus Oklahoma for ninety eight yards. So there's your there's your special teams catch up. But yeah, well I think it's very intriguing uh, what you do at return just because of some of the playmakers you do have at, at the running back position. Well, Instagram tells me that Zach Carter is going to be returning. That's what I saw the other day. Apparently, he was the only defensive lineman who actually caught one. I think was the uh, was the take home from there. So they we're putting him on the ten yard line and telling him not to back up, but make sure you catch it. Hey, I wouldn't want to run into him. I, I would give him a three yard halo if I was a defensive back gunner running down there. But uh, now, you know, I, you make some really good points. I think they've got a pretty decent stable of cornerbacks as well. They've over recruited yep. the cornerback position over the last couple of years. So guys like uh, Ethan Pouncey, guys like Jason Marshall. Um, those yep. sorts of guys might get an opportunity to, to show their wares on special teams, especially early in the year. That is something that they had Kyrie Elam do a lot of special teams his freshman year before they finally put him on the field, you know, maybe halfway through and let him really start to shine at corner. So I, I would expect those would be the two areas where you'd probably see those guys in. But, you know, the, the thing I remember about those Urban Meyer teams and, you know, I went to Virginia Tech. My dad grew up in Blacksburg. So, you know, sort of grew up watching Beamer ball and watched them yeah. win games they shouldn't win because they were turning the game on a special team score. And it's not a momentum thing. It's a when you earn yourself seven points because you're able to block a kick and you put yourself either in fantastic field position or you're able to return it for a touchdown. You know, that just it, it has a it it puts the opposition behind the eight ball immediately. Usually you're gonna be if you're a team like Florida, you're gonna be you know, within seven points of all of your opposition. So if you can get an extra seven, it really puts you in the driver's seat. We saw it against Auburn a couple of years ago where there were just turnovers back and forth, back and forth, back and forth the whole game. But, you know, there was a there was a punt that Auburn muffed and then there was, yeah. you know, the the guy who uh who picked up the fumble from Trask and then fumbled it on <laughs> or no, he looked like he got shot by a sniper, went <laughs> down and then Auburn turned the ball over right after that. You know, the, the reality is, is that those sorts of plays are the things that, that turn games when they're close and Florida just hasn't had any of those, right? There was, there wasn't really, you know, 
the whole time the whole game was screaming for a special teams play against Texas A&M just not able to get it done you think if they block a punt against LSU or block a field goal against LSU all of a sudden it changes the complexion of that game because Florida is able to get up by a score or two and really put some pressure on Max Johnson and then you know you maybe get a pick because he's got to start to force the ball into into different holes um, so those are the things I'm looking for. You know, the, the days of Jeff Demps and Chris Rainey coming off the corner and blocking a kick. I mean, those those days have to come back. And hopefully they've built up some more depth with some of these recruiting classes where they're going to be able to do that because that has not occurred in Mullen's first three years. I mean, you mentioned Tony back there. You know, not really a burner. Like he can, mm-hmm. he can change directions extraordinarily fast, which makes him a real weapon when it comes to – having a corner, you know, he gets in one-on-one coverage, but I never thought of him as a guy who was, who was a threat to take the ball to the house. I mean, he took the one back against Kentucky, but that's because Kentucky's entire punt defense ran in the wrong direction because of the deke from Xavier Henderson. Um, yeah, so I would never really think of him as – I thought of him as more of a conservative choice back there. Freddie Swain was definitely a conservative choice back there to catch punts, never really a threat. So, you know, that's the thing I'm interested in. You mentioned Weston. Maybe Henderson is back there catching punts. Um, you know, maybe one of these young guys steps up. Collier maybe is somebody who who steps up. You know, a guy who's got quite a bit of speed, used to be a corner, got a little bit bigger, isn't necessarily probably going to see the field as a safety a lot as a true freshman, but he'll be able to see the field if they get him out there on, on special. Team, so those, those are the things that I'm sort of looking for. That and and having the fast guys, sort of the backup DBs at, at Gunner, right? When's the last time you remember a guy coming down and absolutely demolishing the opposing yeah. punt returner? We haven't had that either. So, um, you know, I think part of it is is that Mullen's been trying to paper over holes on the offensive and particularly last year, the defensive side of the ball and hasn't really had a whole lot of time to focus on special teams. So you put guys back there that you trust and guys back there that, you know, are going to be consistent, even if they're not necessarily game changers, but especially considering some of the limitations this team's going to have in 2021, I I think that it's a good opportunity to get young guys on the field. You're probably going to have more than your 85 scholarship limit because of the way COVID works and because of guys getting extra years and stuff like that. So you, you don't necessarily, um, all the guys who were on the roster last year get an extra year, right? So you have the you essentially got a free redshirt year last year where they've all got four years of eligibility left. So there's no reason to to have a guy to not have a guy on special teams if he's gifted, and and to not get guys that sort of experience. So hopefully we'll see that. But like you said, we haven't gotten any information about it. It's not something you're going to get from the from the Instagram posts. Um, but uh, but I hope that part of the benefit of having having practice closed is that they have the ability to really work on some things that are going to make a difference on the special teams this year. All right. All right. That'll do it. Q and a episode here of Gators breakdown. Everybody. Thanks for uh, sending the questions and watch the YouTube version uh, as well. Everybody in the chat uh, on the, on the YouTube version, everybody here who's almost here every week. Thanks so much. We'll have to repay you and do a Q and a just for the uh, YouTube chat uh, the, uh, as well. Done it one time before. Definitely have to do it again. Uh, Will Gators a uh, scrimmage March 6th. So come, a scrimmage coming up first scrimmage of the spring for the Gators. So we'll see if uh, anything uh, leaks out there, or maybe the Gators will be doing some stuff uh, that they'll be posting on, on social media. So we'll see uh, what they're going to do uh, for, for the scrimmages coming up. Three scrimmages uh, this spring. That'll be March 6th. Will, will be the first one. I think the other one is the 12th and the 20th, I believe uh, there. So three, uh, three of them, maybe the one on the 20th, you know, that Scott Strickland did say when they announced spring would be closed and they wouldn't have a traditional spring game, they would still do something on TV. Uh, 
for the SEC Network, and I believe he pinpointed that March 20th date. There is a scrimmage that day, so hopefully, hopefully we get something uh, a little more uh, that day. Yeah, man, I'm just praying for ACLs, praying for healthy ACLs, and, <laughs> and hopefully everybody gets through the spring. It's it's interesting. They've sort of built themselves some extra time in case there were any sort of COVID issues, but also, you know, in case there's any injuries. So hopefully they are able to hit and hit significantly this year and work on hitting and tackling. And, and you know, Florida's going to come out next year as one of the best tackling teams in the country because um, they do have a level of talent where if they tackle consistently, they should be able to compete with anybody. Um, but obviously – All about the tease for me on defense, Will. Technique, tackle, and turnovers. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, where, where's lining up? That's the, that's the – uh, put, put that under tempo. Put that under <laughs> tempo. I'll add one more T. <laughs> uh, well, we're not here to talk about 2020, Dave. So. Hey, 2021's got a lot to do with 2020. So. <laughs> oh, Ty Grantham, darn you. You don't want to talk about it, Will. But here's the yeah. thing. I know. That. I mean, that, that's a coach thing. Even if the defense was really good, well, that was last year. We got to do what we got to do for 2021. So I don't know. But yeah, I don't, I, Grantham has a Belichick personality, but he doesn't necessarily have the uh, the the track record. Um, he he's not shutting down the Buffalo Bills and Jim Kelly and the K Gun. Yeah. At least he hasn't done it yet. Um, if he shuts down Alabama. And he shuts down Georgia next year. I'll shut up. It's fine. I won't. I won't. Uh, I will give him the the credit that he deserves for turning things around. And you know, hey, it's great he didn't focus on 2020. But I think there's some things you can learn from 2020. Yeah. Um. And, and hopefully the team learns from it because uh, tempo is not going away. Nope. Nope. Especially when teams know you had problems with it. So. Early on in the season, I expect to see <laughs> those teams Florida's play and to test uh, Florida and see if they've improved that uh, the tempo part of the defense. All right, well, uh, anything else coming up? I know you, you had the Gilbert article up on Read and Reaction. Anything else coming up this week? Yes, yeah, so I have been working on an Emory Jones article, sort of talking about the things he does well and the things he doesn't do well. That was going to run this week, but now it's – or it was going to run this past week, but it didn't because of the Gilbert stuff. So that will probably go up this week. Um, and uh, now beyond that, just sort of taking it easy. The, the baby is uh, – is taking up just as much time as you would imagine. So, oh yeah, uh, you know it's it's hard to I can't type with one hand. So, <laughs> plenty, plenty of congrats sent your way last week when we announced it on the podcast. So that, that was pretty cool to see. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks everybody. I appreciate it. We're the, mom's doing fine. We're sleeping decently, but uh, it, it's an adjustment. And uh, he's our fourth. So uh, the other three have had to adjust as well. So it's been <laughs> yeah. an interesting. Time. I'm, I'm just glad he didn't come in September because I would have had to ignore him. Yeah, yeah, honey, go to the hospital. I'll be there in a little while. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's Will Miles. You can find him on Twitter at Will Miles SEC and his site, readreaction.com. I'm the host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown. Gators Breakdown.